My name is Evan, and I use he/him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they/them pronouns. And we are the, the Baker, Baker Street, Street Regulars, Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, David. Hey, nice to be back. Welcome back. So, for for listeners who missed last episode, you were our guest then as well. You talked a bit about your biography, but do you want to sketch in quick details again? Sure. Actor, author of historical fiction, and Sherlock Holmes enthusiast. I grew up watching and listening to Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce play these iconic roles. It does not mean I am blind to their faults and failures. Love the books. Love the short stories. We didn't do this last time. My favorite short story that's outside of like the normal canon, I am a big fan of the three Garadebs. That is one mm. of my all-time favorite stories right mm. there. It's the only time where Holmes overtly shows how much he cares about Watson. Interesting. So uh, that actually is a good segue to what I was going to talk about next, which is that one of the things that I've always loved as a fan of the Sherlock Holmes stories is the potential for queer subtext. Is that something that you also get out of it? Or, or is there something else that you love about those stories? Being a kid, I didn't see it. Being an adult, I can totally see it. The The gentleman bachelor thing was certainly prevalent in the Victorian era which led which led to the rise of gay nightclubs and all that stuff. Actually, which is a little bit explored in Caleb Carr's *The Alienist* of the same era in New York. The the love between these two, I mean, they they go to great lengths to make Watson a ladies' man. And if, if we talk about on the queer spectrum, Holmes is much more asexual, aromantic than he is uh, a homosexual. It's one of those where he's very much just sworn it all off whether he's not attracted or he sees it as a waste or he's terrified of it. That's a long conversation to be had. He is very, however, denigrating of women most of the time. Yeah. 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 It's interesting to see. I think there's a real spectrum of, of where the two characters fall in terms of how they feel about each other and how they feel about women, especially because in the original Conan Doyle stories, Watson is the narrator and the stories are about how cool Sherlock Holmes is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get adaptations where it feels like Watson is really in love with Sherlock and Sherlock couldn't be bothered. But I think you also get some where it feels the other way around or it feels like they're, you know, just our good friends. Or they just love each other. Or they just love each other. Where's that one? I want that one. Well, we'll we'll get there at some point. I'm sure it's, I mean, it's been, it's it's been written. I've I've read them. I've seen them. So they exist. The, for many years, Arthur Conan Doyle's estate was very protective of what people did with the characters. But now that the stories are in the public domain, I'll be curious to see what the next 10 high-profile adaptations look like. Right. Absolutely. So what drew you to these stories as a young person? What always fascinates me looking back, I mean, now I just I see why I love detective stories and the mystery and the solving, but they're also great character stories. I mean, Charles Augustus Milverton and... Even Lestrade, they're they're great characters, and it is uh, about studying the people more than it is the crime. Because I mean, the the plot of a Sherlock Holmes story is Holmes is always withholding some esoteric knowledge that the reader does not have that ends up being the thing that solves it. Mm-hmm. And so that would get old if we were not interested in the relationship of the characters. And it really is the Holmes Watson back and forth their dynamic that is so vital to the success of Sherlock Holmes. Him by himself would not be interesting. We need to watch him through Watson's eyes. And anytime we lose that kind of awe from Watson, the stories kind of go awry. Conan Doyle, a couple from Sherlock Holmes' point of view, The Lion's Mane coming to mind. And then he wrote one from a third-person point of view, where Watson is like in it for a minute and a half at the beginning, and then he's gone. And it's it's really weird. It's not not a cool story at all. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that this movie they're about to talk about, The Voice of Terror, is described as being loosely based on a Sherlock Holmes story called His Last Bow, which is also is told in the third person. We That one is told, yes. I, I was not thinking of that one. I was thinking of another one. But yes, that one is told by the third person. Yeah, where Watson and Sherlock don't show up, or rather don't show up in a way that the audience recognizes until, I don't know, five pages in the end, maybe. <laughs> yes, they are revealed to be Holmes and Watson having come out of retirement Holmes has left his bees and has gone back to helping to fight the Germans in World War One. <laughs> yes. This to call this a loose adaptation is maybe generous. 
<laughs> the only relationship is that the bad guy has the same name as the bad guy in his last bow, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And that they're both German spies posing as British citizens. But other than that, this is an entirely new story. Why don't you dive into fast facts? So some fast facts. Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror was released in... September of 1942. A little backstory. So the previous two movies of the 14 Rathborn and Bruce films were released by 20th Century Fox. And 20th Century Fox wanted to continue with the Sherlock Holmes films themselves. However, negotiations with the Conan Doyle estate became really unfruitful when the estate insisted that all future scripts must remain faithful to the original material. Which is wild given what happened. Right. (laughs) So after that, Sherlock kind of bounced around different studios. Warner Brothers was in contact for a very, very long time, as well as MGM. However, it ended up going to Universal in early 1942 as they entered into a contract with the estate and agreed to pay $300,000 for the screen rights to the character. And the thing with Universal films at this time, or at least with these types of films, is that detective films were usually relegated to be like second features. So they weren't like the main focus of Universal, but they still got some like special treatment so they got like an average budget and a less hectic production schedule which is crazy to think since there were like what 12 other of these right they made two a year (laughs) seems like but filming began in may of 1942 under the title sherlock holmes saves london it was directed by john rollins and it is the only universal sherlock holmes film that wasn't directed by roy william neal so this is rollins first and only sherlock interesting And people loved it. People really, really loved it and kind of started the rest of the film series. A part of me wonders that Basil Rathbone had made a big deal in 39 of wanting to go and fight, but he was too old. He was 47 when he first started playing Sherlock Holmes. And so the the army wouldn't let him. So I'm wondering if part of the, the change of direction for Holmes was this is his effort, you know, to to buck up the British public during the war years. Yeah, there's a quote here that I really like. A critical account of the film, I think a more contemporary one, which reads, It is to be feared that neither the home series nor the war effort are greatly aided by this ambitious but ineffective attempt to merge the two. <laughs> so so what we're sort of talking around is the fact that when Universal took over the Holmes films, they updated them to the 1940s. Right. And set Holmes squarely against the Nazis. That's one of my favorite moments in the entire film is when he informs the young lady Kitty that her, her lover husband, Gavin, has been killed. And he reveals then, yes, Kitty, the Nazis killed him. Oh, so great. Just, it just cracks me up every time. Yeah, I think we had to pause the movie. We, we, yeah, we, <laughs> I was just like dumbfounded, but also laughing. Yeah. But also just loved the delivery. Like it was just everything in one. Yeah. Starting at the beginning of the movie, we get a bit of text on the screen, which is, I think, intended to explain why the characters that you know and love are suddenly in the 1940s. Uh, This is what it says. Sherlock Holmes, the immortal character of fiction created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, is ageless, invincible, and unchanging. In solving significant problems of the present day, he remains, as ever, the supreme master of deductive reasoning. So already they're like, we want to make sure that you know he's not a vampire or the living undead. Right. And what's funny is that, like, this obviously is very dated now. This is, I mean, almost 80 years ago. (laughs) But this is sort of more like BBC Sherlock or Elementary, which is taking the idea of Sherlock Holmes and putting him in the modern age, than it is like a period piece. And I find it really... I guess odd that they had to be like, well, this is why we're doing it. Whereas today we're like, okay, yeah, sure, do it. I don't care. Right. Do you think they had like purists back then or like critics who'd be like, well, this isn't supposed to happen. And right. this should be in Victoria, London, not not the modern day. 
Is that what critics sound like? They, they absolutely what... had purists back then. And one of the, my favorite moments in the film is they're about to rush out to to, to hunt down the, the guy who killed Gavin. And uh, Holmes is about to put on his deerstalker. And Watson looks, ah, you promised. Oh, all right. And puts on a normal hat. <laughs> right. Which is, which is a hilarious, odd callback. We talked about the deerstalker being turned into the Sherlock Holmes hat by the Nigel Bruce Basil Rathbone right. out of the Baskervilles movie in some ways. So it's interesting that, does he wear it in... The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the movie between the two? Yes, he does. Fantastic. Interesting. That's well, so and of course, you know, it, it, if I remember right, it shows up in one of the Paget drawings. And he's laying on the ground outside. I forget which which episode it's in, Adventure of something, something. But he's laying on the ground. He's got a deerstalker on. And so that's that was the first appearance of Sherlock Holmes in a deerstalker. It's never mentioned in the stories. But because the artist put it in, it became symbolic of the character. So the film opens with this with this montage of a radio broadcast from Germany mm-hmm. of an English sounding voice that describes himself as the voice of terror. People of England, people of England, it is the voice of terror. Who describes a series of military catastrophes effectively as they happen. And we see footage of them happening at the same time. This is based on a true story. There are these German propaganda British language broadcasts mm. being carried out like three years before this movie was released, basically. So this is this is very recent by someone who's dubbed Lord Ha Ha. Oh, I, I know Lord Ha Ha. If you ever want to hear a man disintegrating on air on radio, as the Russians and the Allies are approaching Berlin, he's drunk on the air trying to justify the last six years of his life of being a British man fighting for the Nazis. Wow. Someone should make a plan on that. Yeah, right? It's it's awful. I bet. Yet somehow satisfying. <laughs> so the film, after that, the film cuts to the inner council of the British government. Mm-hmm. The British intelligence. Right. Who are discussing the Voice of Terror broadcasts and the merits of bringing in Sherlock Holmes to deal with them, which some people are very against because, because they have a whole military. <laughs> they have a whole uh, police force and so on. Right. It's the leader... Of the British intelligence. I assume he's the leader. He seems to be the one in charge. Yes, yeah, I don't M totally understand all the roles here. Yeah, he would be M in the Bond movies. He's he's an admiral. Which is Barham, right? Yes, Barham. Uh, Sir Evan Barham? Yes. Yes. Who has a scar on his face, so you know he's the bad guy from the beginning of the movie. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a long tradition of, like, Germans specifically being depicted in movies of the period with scars in their face, which I found out recently is because they all uh, participated in fencing as kids mm. yes it was very very stylish to to have a fencing jewel to have a, a rakish fencing jewel on your face i'm gonna start a counter of that's the bad guy at the beginning i'm gonna start this counter <laughs> we're at two now <laughs> right it's interesting how both this and the radio episode we talked about last episode are so much more obvious in their plotting than the arthur conan doyle stories oh and then i'm at three now because <laughs> we're talking about hound of the baskervilles i clocked Stapleton. Stapleton right away. He had the creepy tiny mustache. That's true. Herm <laughs> had a tiny creepy mustache too with the scar. Oh yeah. If you have a tiny mustache, <laughs> you are a Sherlock Holmes villain. I don't make yeah. the rules. I wonder if that's a difference in the like uh, ethics and style of writing mystery stories at this time that like did audiences want the villains to be really easy to spot or that like these codes about people having mustaches or scars were, were more common or was it would it have been more surprising that these things became tropes later? Oh, I have to figure they were very much tropes at the time. Mm-hmm. We lean hard into our, our snidely whiplash, and this all comes out of pantomime stuff and melodramas from the previous century that are all standardized. We recognize what these characters are. Mm-hmm. Like in the 1980s, if a character has hair that is lighter than their skin color, they're a villain. But if you, there, we, we rely on so many bizarre tropes. The the sitcom trope today with a an overweight husband and a really th- a rail thin wife, which the Simpsons uses and, you know, King of Queens and all that comes straight out of the Honeymooners and the Flintstones, mm-hmm. which has been around forever. They, they, they were the first and they made it very much the standard. And everyone has copied it ever since. Everything old is new again. Uh, exactly. I, I still think it's odd, this inner council scene, because I, I don't understand why they... I think that Sherlock Holmes is the only answer to their problems, but it's a movie. One of them describes him as unorthodox and theatrical, which I like because he very much is. But my favorite thing is that someone has summoned him. So he shows up. Barham, in fact, has summoned him. Yeah. So he shows up and he's brought Watson with him. 
<laughs> to the inner council of the government, which I think is very funny. Like because well, they're dating. I know that that Watson has to go everywhere Holmes does because that's how the story works. But there's a couple times where uh, Sherlock shows no respect for the inner council and has people just walking in throughout this film. <laughs> Or just knocking on the door. I, I I assumed like if this was like today, he'd order a pizza. Right. And have it delivered. I, I mean, later in the film, he just like plopped down at a desk and just, like takes control of <laughs> of the scene. So he would. Holmes has, has no respect for, for authority, which is, you know, wonderful. What The guy who said that he sees theatrical and unorthodox is Anthony Lloyd, played mm-hmm. by Henry Daniel. What's interesting is Henry Daniel is one of these these actors, and the universal actors, they're stock players. They show up in all of these movies in different roles. He actually plays Moriarty in The Woman in Green. So that actor comes back again and again and again and ends up you know, being promoted to Moriarty. Which is two for two because a, a bit player in How Do the Basketballs also plays Moriarty later in this series of films. Yes, Dr. Mortimer from How Do the Basketballs. Yes, they, they don't ever have any consistency in who is playing Moriarty. I, that could be played well, I feel like. There could be something very like fun and mysterious about that, like Moriarty's The Man of a Thousand Faces. Although I assume it's much more like this is the actor who was available at the time. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but the guy who, who confronts Holmes and Watson in the pub about, you know, how did you know it was me? How did you catch me? You sent me up for prison for 10 years. And how did you know? Who told you? Who told you? He shows up in all the Sherlock Holmes movies. He is what some some form or another. I was looking up his biography, and he's in gazillion movies, uncredited as just bartender. He here thug here he's all over the place and he was uh, a major character in uh, the adventures of robin hood with basil rathbone and uh errol flynn but it's, he's, it's it's amazing watching the bit players go from film to film yeah and he has a really great great stare <laughs> so oh, yeah. i can see him playing a lot of those roles i was gonna say i hope that stare follows that every film find find the staring guy I also want to point out that in this scene and the scene following it, we get two elementary, my dear blanks. We get elementary, my dear Watson and elementary, my dear boy, which Does which it, is which is not in the books, but is popularized by these movies as far as I can tell. Doesn't Watson yeah. say it? Watson says it first. Sherlock says it second. Yeah. Watson in these movies, because they, they have the Nigel Bruce bumbling thing, he's always trying to imitate Holmes and make it seem like he knows far more than other people because he's his his proximity to Holmes makes him intelligent. I will say, compared to Hound of the Baskervilles, Nigel Bruce uh, is much more understandable and less bumbling in this one. He's just now just an idiot. Yeah, he, he just needs to have things explained to him, which is always kind of the role in the story, so that he's the audience insert, right? Like Holmes needs to dumb down what he's saying, but it, it feels a little little overdone here. Yeah, well, it, it only gets worse as the movies go on. I mean, he glues things to his elbow. They're trying to save the Borgia Pearl, the Pearl of Death, in a version of the the Six Napoleons, and he ends up, like, every time they need to hide the pearl, he puts it in his mouth. And it's it's just ridiculous stuff that goes on. During this scene at the Inner Council, there's a new broadcast in the Voice of Terror, and everyone rushes over to the big radio for, for government listening. <laughs> and my favorite detail about this is that whoever the Voice of Terror is, has done like audio production. It's very, very audiobook narrator. He's like, the train goes off the tracks and then there's like audio of people screaming and he goes, that is an exact reproduction of how it will sound. <laughs> and I love that he's like, like either hired a cast or, you know, there's, that he really put some work into this, these radio podcasts. I love all oh, his production values. They're, no, they're, they're great. The production values for his, his uh, uh, propaganda audio broadcasts are amazing. They're amazing. But also it was very po- common at the time. If something was pre-recorded, you had to let the audience know. Mm. on radio and one of those weird things where this is this is a transcription oh i don't know if it was a legal stipulation or something but they had to let you know so people were very used to this is a recreation this is a thing this is a thing and that comes up later because the voice of terror broadcasts are supposedly live we find out later that they are in fact pre-recorded which makes no sense to me the whole plot there does not make any sense to me uh, how do you mean well, I just okay. So apparently, these are recorded in England. Why are they recorded in England? Why? Why do we have to have a a German plane, a Nazi plane, fly over and pick up the recording? I I don't understand. Yeah, it feels like they could get the information to Germany and record it there, or do it live. In fact, right. I I also find it weird that we don't see like any concrete proof of this. Like Holmes is just like, yes, this is what is happening. Like they could have at least shown like. I don't know, a microphone in a dark room somewhere to be like, this is where this is being recorded. And they have this odd moment right before they leave the uh, inner council where Sherlock makes a really stupid deduction. (laughs) He says, Watson, when we leave this building, I deduce that a woman will be standing outside who we've never met before who will introduce herself to us, which comes to pass. And she's, she's there to drive them. 
and they got in the car and Watson goes, however, did you know? And he goes, well, they told me. <laughs> and it's like, what, what is the function of that? Like, he's just trying to impress Watson or he's showing off or like, it's, it's, it's an odd moment. And, and the moment is made even worse by the fact that there is no point at which he could have gotten that information. Yes, Byron the whole never time. told him that. There's we we saw the, their entire interaction. There was no point at which he could have been told that information. Right, unless it was before he entered the room. By the way, that actress who plays their driver ends up being the villain in The Woman in Green, alongside Henry Danielle's again <laughs> more bit players again and again. Every time you mention that movie, all I can think is the absurdity of naming a black and white film The Woman in Green. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's, by the way, in that one, there's a somebody hypnotizing people and having them you know, murder somebody and cut off their finger and trying to blackmail them forever. It's crazy. Wow. Talk about fears that are of the moment and not eternal. <laughs> that, that feels very, very much a worry we don't have anymore. Right. So we, we now get to my least favorite part of this movie. The, the one thing that this is this is so small. This is just Blix being upset by something. And we have Holmes listening to Beethoven's Fifth on the radio being broadcast live. And then he calls yes. in again and says, hey, could you play a recording of this? So then they play a recording. Now mm-hmm. we have him charting this on a, on a piece of graph paper, mm-hmm. but what's hilarious and awful to me is before the second broadcast, he's already, the paper already has dots where he's going to go and fill in I the parabola. And it, it's, it's already there, he's already graphed it all out. So there's no point in listening to it again or Somebody was just really lazy with their prop work that day and couldn't film it before the dots were there and then after the dots were there. It's just bad storytelling, and it just makes me angry every time I see it. Well, and the thing that's also annoying about this this radio scene is that it's never explained. He's yeah, right. charting the differences between the two radio frequencies or something, which, like, it, yes, it, the it, case it's... is about radio, so that makes sense, but he never explains the deduction and where it led him. Right, well, he eventually comes up not with it's a it's not live right and so for some reason the broadcast but we don't understand why he's doing this they don't they do not connect those dots very well and watson doesn't either and my favorite thing about this scene is that watson has no other business to do so watson is just standing near him watching him listen to the radio <laughs> but yes. he has just no inner life he has no hobbies he's just like well, investigating him why you sit there how dare you just sit there we, we got to save the world and right you're sitting there and listening you're- you're just listening to Beethoven's Fifth over and over again. I was going to say Beethoven's Fifth very important because it was it was heard constantly during World War II because the the opening bum 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 was the dot 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 dash in Morse code of the letter V, and so it would open all war themed broadcasts for V for victory. So anytime you listen to something about the war, you heard the beginning of Beethoven's Fifth. There's a lot of British patriotism in this movie, which is funny because it's an American made movie with a primarily American cast. Yep, but it's made in 42, so we're all on board now. Mm-hmm, that's true. Um, yeah, it, it couldn't have been made in 40. It could have been made in 42. So, But then the door opens, and a, a somebody we've never heard of, apparently he's a, an informant or somebody that Holmes has used, someone who's a part of the criminal element, staggers in with a knife in his back and mutters the word, Mr. Holmes, Christopher, and dies. I mean, it is so stereotypical. The point at which, you know, even Daffy Duck cartoons make fun of this moment. I wanted um, to stand up and applaud. Right. I mean, talk about camp. So uh, conveniently at that moment, a police officer has who noticed Gavin sulking, sulking around, enters uh, their apartment without knocking and d- takes care of the body for them so they can rush off to the next. Right. To, to the to the no knocking point, even before the policeman to the no knocking. So Gavin has come up. He, did, did Mrs. Hudson let him in? How did he get in the downstairs door, let alone into the apartment? So many people just barge into their rooms. <laughs> and also, did, was the knife thrown at street level? Right. And then did he go up a flight of stairs with a knife in his back? Yes, he must have. He must have done it because Holmes does a whole like deduction of, you know, the knife was thrown from 50 meters away by a left-handed person who was five feet 10. What? And, by the angle of entry. Okay, but what, who was standing on what when they, okay, yeah, just so many. Right, draw a map of this. Uh, and it was thrown by the blade because the force was so strong. No, no, no. Thrown by the blade because there are no fingerprints, which makes no sense. Yes. Yeah. I think there'd still be fingerprints unless there were, man was gloved. But my favorite thing is that he deduces that and, and Watson goes, however, could you know? Like he's never worked with Sherlock Holmes before. Right. So they, they dash out to the bar in the bad part of town. A, a poor man recognizes them immediately and is like, you shouldn't come down here. We also find that a taxi driver girl is also following them, kind of keeping a watch. Which also goes nowhere. 
I always wonder about these films because this film is an hour. If they had an extra 10, 15 minutes, what would they do with it? <laughs> like what, what things would they explain that they don't ever explain or, or go anywhere with? Like this idea that they're being tailed by their driver shows up in this scene and then never again. And this was the first moment where I realized, oh, okay, the budget went down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Compared to how the Baskervilles. Yeah, the budget went down. This oh, yeah. pretty small. Yeah, they put all those money into, into their rooms and then the rest of it just kind of falls away. I also am interested in the idea in this scene that everybody recognizes Sherlock Holmes on site, that he's an established entity. People, especially in the criminal underworld, know exactly who he is and what he looks like, especially because when we started this, especially in Studying Scarlet, it seems like people don't know what he looks like. Yeah. He's become famous by this point in. And even without the the hat and the pipe yeah you know people people recognize him and david as you mentioned before he's recognized from across the bar so to speak across the room by a bit player actor yeah well before he is recognized in the bar a knife is thrown at them oh yeah yes to which... they, hang out, they hang out looking oh look at that knife yeah <laughs> to which holmes is like it's a german knife <laughs> these are the nazis right all right uh which it is important because at first I was like, why does he know that this Gavin thing is related to the Nazis at all? But it's the fact that it's the same knife. Yeah. Which I didn't get at first. We get a, like another patriotic word war line. Watson is like, shouldn't we do something, go somewhere where it's safe or something? And he says, no one in the world is safe now, Watson, least of all us. So just interesting how much of this film is about like the struggle that they're facing as a metaphor for the larger struggle. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they, they go down and there's a there's a a, a a bouncer who says, oh, you shouldn't go in here. I can't keep you out, but you shouldn't go in. Yeah, let, me, let me in. Let me, we're going in. So they go in and all the, of course, the music stops, the low yes. class British music, uh, the drinking house music all stops. and Everyone just stares. You got all sorts of wonderful camera angles and you know slanting lights across people's eyes. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's fantastic. And you get Henry Cording as Camberwell. That's that's the guy's name, the actor's name, who's just who's staring at them from across. And he's just getting ready to murder them. And he storms up to Holmes asks for Kitty to show up. And meanwhile, Camberwell comes up and demands to know uh, who, who grasped on him. And it turns out it was him. Yeah. There were four specks of ash from a terrible type of cigar that only you smoke. And it was clearly done by a left-handed person. You signed your name to it. Oh, I ought to be shot. Well, maybe someday you will be. And it's just so casual. (laughs) Two things I love about this. Uh, One is that the evidence is circumstantial at best. You know, it's a commonly available cigar clear that anyone could have smoked. And then uh, also the fact that he is he's like been in prison for 10 years and he like storms up and is like clearly mad that he had to go to jail for a crime that he committed. And then he his, his curiosity is entirely intellectual. Like once he finds out how Sherlock Holmes did his deductions, he's like, well, I guess that makes sense. I guess it's a fair cop. And Holmes is like, you were just lazy about it. And then he's like, I was lazy about it. Right, and, and he, then he admonishes Watson, "Put away the gun." Oh, sorry, sorry. And then Kitty comes in. Kitty is Gavin, the guy that got you know the knife in the back at the beginning of the story. His wife, and she's like, "What have you done with my husband?" Yeah. And he's like, "He's dead. The Nazis got him." <laughs> right. So, which is still so good. I had to look up this actress because she has this beautiful like movie star face and these piercing eyes. She like sort of has a Judy Garland effect. And she's described on Wikipedia as the queen of the bees. She had this very prolific career in bee movies. Most notably, Most notably Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then then Holmes inspires Kitty to form a band of four people to act <laughs> as spies. Criminals, ne'er-do-wells, the underworld. Right. There's a lot of classism going on in this in this whole sequence. There is. And she's she's rallying them against classism because we all, all have to unite to fight the Nazis. Right. Yes. And she gives a rousing speech and, and everybody claps. I assume everyone claps in the, the theater and when they watch the movie. It sort of feels like remaking the Baker Street Irregulars, though, because in the books, of course, Sherlock has his network of like street urchins. And here it's just adult poor people, adult ne'er-do-wells, as you say. Right. But what's interesting, of course, is that the Benedict Cumberbatch show is going to take a page from this and turn it into his homeless network. Yes. Yeah. I also love, just out of context, her running up to people at the beginning of the part where she's going into her rousing speech and going, do you know what Christopher means? Because it's a common name. Like, yeah, I have a brother named Christopher. What are you talking about? Yeah. And then that one guy. Oh, yeah. There's a bad insert shot. I forget what the line is. I forget, too, but it's so good. Yeah. I never wait of it or something like that. Yeah. Everybody 
everybody has vague British Brooklyn accents. It's really great. Yeah. Right? Holmes visits the inner council again. Sir Evans has a bullet wound on his hand from being shot at. Holmes, okay. which, that I have questions about. Because if it's self-inflicted, why are there no powder wounds on it? You know, powder right. wounds on it. So yeah. I, I have all sorts of questions. Yeah, you would think that Holmes and Watson would be able to recognize a self-inflicted bullet wound at close quarters. And if it's not self-inflicted, then right, then exactly who did it? Did he get the, his Nazi co-conspirator, Mead, who we're going to meet in a scene or two, to shoot him from a longer distance? But like that precisely. Right. <laughs> a lot of a lot of questions. This is where we get that that the voice of terror has been recorded in England and is being... Right. Holmes suspects yeah. that the inner council is the target of the voice of terror, which is why Sir Evans has been shot at, presumably. Um, and uh, he's also visited the air ministry to find out that, that there has been a, a bunch of pointless Nazi bombing raids, but a plane has always been breaking off and going somewhere. And that's the plane's been picking up the actual voice of terror broadcasts. Yes. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, well, it's it's very quick, and it also feels like something that the military should have also noticed. Right? Kitty arrives with some sort of news, uh, and he invites her directly into the inner council. <laughs> At some point between now and a couple scenes from now, Kitty starts seeing one of the Nazis. Mead. Mead. Unclear when that starts, or how that starts, or why. W- Wikipedia has it that Kitty pretends to be a thief on the run and joins me just to, like... You know, find out stuff for Holmes. I don't think the movie says that. I don't think the movie says that either, but it's what Wikipedia says, and Wikipedia is always right. The movie implies it because he says, what did you steal? And, like, he knows that she's a thief somehow, magically, mm-hmm. but he's like, oh, I can get you better than that. That's not worth it, you know. Or you go, fine, go back outside, and the police will catch you. And so my thing, my real issue with all this entire Kitty storyline now is that Holmes has sent her out to do this. Holmes is prostituting her. To mm-hmm. get information about me, I am not okay with Sherlock Holmes sending out this woman who's just lost her husband to sleep with a Nazi agent to get information. I am I am un- uncomfortable with this. It's yeah. bad enough in Charles Augustus Milverton when he seduces a young housemaid and and promises to marry her so that he can get into Charles Augustus Milverton's house. But that at least is, you know it, it's it's bad, but it's not sending a woman out to you know seduce a guy. I'm just like, what is going on in this movie? Well, and he treats her as disposable. I mean, we'll talk about it when we get there, but this leads to her death. Yes, it certainly does. I want to jump back really quick because when Sir Evans has the bullet wound, Holmes asks Watson to inspect it. And he says, it's a bullet wound. And Holmes goes, congratulations. (laughs) Just really underlining the uselessness of bringing Watson anywhere. (laughs) And, And furthermore, at the end of the inner council scene, Watson's like, I have to go and I can't tell you where. They all like are chattering. And then Watson goes back in because he forgot his walking stick. And they all stop and he goes, stick, <laughs> and then leaves. <laughs> and we all start chattering again. So how'd they get anything done is a mystery. Right. Why why does this Holmes associate himself with this Watson? Right. Their friendship is so one-sided mm-hmm. and so dismissive of this Watson. I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. One certainly wonders. Right. So what Kitty has found out is that Christopher refers to the Christopher Street docks. And they go down there and Lloyd, one of the inner council members, has followed them and Holmes invites him to join along. Holmes has this like walking stick that is also a flashlight. Yes. Which I loved. Which I loved. I, loved it. I just think it's a cool, a cool thing to have. I was so impressed by it. I, like, I, want one. I want one of those. <laughs> yeah. It seems like maybe not the most practical, but it's interesting. It's cool. It's a cool thing. All right, you you guys can crap all over it, all you want. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. Okay, I'm with you, David. So happy. So I'll speed through this because it, it's it's just mostly plot, unless any of you have things to jump in with. But a big theatrical light kicks on from overhead, and they're menaced with a gun from the shadows by a guy who then immediately just steps into the light and reveals that he's someone we've never seen before. This is the Nazi Mead, RF Mead. So they're in a sticky situation. Mead and some of his uh, Nazi co-conspirators have them surrounded with guns. They're going to shoot them. And Holmes alerts his poor militia by sneezing. And there's a a poor people brawl. Um, The guns don't go off. Yeah, they don't use the guns in the brawl. (laughs) One one weird fact about the actor, Thomas Gomez, this was his first movie. Yes, I saw that. I, I think he's fun in this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's he's perfectly villainous and wonderfully, you know, bad Nazi dude. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, there is something interesting in here talking about the Holmes-Watson relationship, which is that Meade offers his opinion about 
the two people in the room who are not Sherlock Holmes about Lloyd and then about Watson. And he says that he's a, I think like a mediocre doctor of no consequence and Holmes defends him. He says, every light is of consequence. So clearly he sees something in the guy. Right. Yes. You Nazis don't care for people. We care for everyone, even once. <laughs> so then they they back all the Germans up against a wall for for some reason. Like, I don't know why they do this. It seems like it's like execution style. Right. But RF Mead has the world's most conveniently placed trap door and trap door activation method. And escapes. And escapes. There's a nail in the wall, which opens a trap door, which allows him to get away into a speeding boat, which is a lot. Which is a lot to have planned in advance. Right? Uh, who has the boat waiting? Right. Yeah. And did he have to even start the boat? Was the boat running when he got... Yeah. Right. A lot of questions. I have questions. We already mentioned that Kitty and RF Mead start working together. It's a confusing scene. At first, I was like, oh, God, Kitty's a turncoat. But it turns out that she's working for Holmes the whole time. Yeah. Kitty comes back and finds out that Mead's going to go to Sir Evan's country estate that night. So Holmes also says that he let Mead get away. Yeah. Because there's this moment where he sees Mead reaching for the nail which activates the trap door and lets him do it but which pisses Lloyd off yes so did Holmes I, I have questions because he said I arranged it was really hard for me to arrange his escape I'm like okay did you see the nail did you see the outline in the floor of the trap door right so you knew the one led to the I, I, I it's that's amazing deduction there Holmes I mean right. that's... like we need to push them against that wall where no doubt he'll have a, a speedboat already revved up and ready to go <laughs> below yeah yeah, lots of questions. They go to, they get warning that Mead is going to Barham's, area of Barham's houses, and we in the audience assume to take him out. But they go out there and the, the German plane that picks up the the Voice of Terror's recordings shows up and Mead rendezvous with it. But Barham shoots towards him and scares him off. Right. And of course, Barham then castigates Holmes for, why didn't you help me try to stop them? I, we could have caught them. And we always trying to you know make make Holmes look questionable until we reveal all that he knew what he was doing all along. Yeah, this is another one where, even though there are more characters than there are in the Gunpowder Plot, it doesn't feel like there are that many more characters because the most of the Inner Council acts as just like a mess. Yeah, the only one is 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 Anthony Lloyd, the guy Henry Daniel, who's who's following them and keeping tabs on them, and is aggressively antagonistic towards them. I think they're trying to throw suspicion on him early on. No, I've seen that mustache. I've seen that facial scar. Facial right. scar is mean evil, as we all know. And, he, and he's and he's too damn friendly. Although at the very at the, one of his first lines is someone talks about getting the voice of terror off the air, and he's like, "Oh, I don't think we need to go that far." So he like starts the movie being suspicious. Actually, can we can we just talk about the person who is the villain calling in the hero out of arrogance? This the number of times as a trope, as a yeah. trope, right there. Yeah, I would love to know where that one began. Yeah, it's. I think it like ticks the box of because I, there are so many um, murder mysteries that manage to do like unsatisfying denouement, and it was the person you least expected is more satisfying. I can see like on a story on an audience reaction level that being a more satisfying thing, but it feels so silly, especially when it's Sherlock Holmes who is so much of a public figure and so much of a known entity that the inner council is willing to bring him in on a matter of state exactly yeah that just it feels ridiculous for the villain to bring him in to try and outwit him and put his entire plot at risk because basically england would have been invaded if they hadn't asked sherlock holmes to join them because the next thing that happens is that the voice of terror makes a broadcast who is the voice of terror, by the by? I kept expecting a reveal like this person is the voice of terror, but it's not Mead's voice, is it? I think it's assumed to be Barum. No, I mean that would be that, would be, that wouldn't work because everyone knows what his voice sounds like. On it the was, Wikipedia it, page, it says it is him. Yeah, it's fair. It's, he's speaking in his original accent. That's funny. So there's a new voice of terror broadcast which suggests that there will be an attack on the coast. I think they say. I think they imply yes. the northern coast. Yes, of England. But it's not going to happen right away, like a lot of the other Voice of Terror things are, are already in progress. It's going to happen the next day, and there'll be another broadcast. Tomorrow. Right, which is unusual. And Holmes, I think, immediately correctly susses out that it's a tactic to get them to withdraw troops from other coasts, other yeah. areas to protect. The I think specifically coast. from the South. Oh, also interesting detail here. Holmes, at the beginning of the scene, announces that he has just come from, this is back at the Inner Council, 
Holmes announces that he has just come from Downing Street. Yes. And the inner council has totally lost faith in what he's doing. And they're like not willing to let him go forward. And then they get a call from, we assume the prime minister, telling them that they not only must allow him to continue, but have to go with him. Which is fascinating because Churchill, of course, you know, famously 10 Downing Streets where the prime minister lives. Mm-hmm. But Churchill spent most of his time in his war offices at that point. So they're, they're trying to just reference Churchill without saying Churchill. I wonder why they're being shy about bringing specific historical figures in to the story. That's a great question. Historical, but a specific temporary. Yeah. Maybe they don't want it to be like too real. Maybe. Just real enough, but not like. This is an American fantasy about Britain. Yes. 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 Uh, So Churchill or whomever, whoever the prime minister is in this alternate reality, has also made military arrangements. They drive out to this abandoned church on the southern coast and the military is there waiting for homes. Which is also odd that Holmes is suddenly commanding the military. The uh, the Nazis are all, are are all in there, Mead and Co. Right, and they're dressed as Nazis now. And Kitty is kind of locked away in another room. Yes, well, not locked away, but she's, she's off to the side. She's she's hanging out in another room. Yeah, I I love that they were dressed as Nazis. And you know what? I I wouldn't I wouldn't give that a ding because they're expecting an invasion force, so they should dress as as the invaders so they're Mm -hmm. recognizable so i was like okay all right no in terms of the actual plan it's helpful storytelling but it's actually you know it makes sense in the world that they're creating for them to all be in their nazi garb they're talking about their plan and then Uh, in comes the brits right and they surrender immediately to the mighty force of the british empire um kitty comes out she's like hey what we get here is actually fascinating because across the uh, across our episode so far we haven't had this yet Sherlock makes everyone wait while he explains all the deductions. Yes. He tells the whole story to the, he, he does the like, let's all gather in the drawing room and I'll explain what's been going on this whole time thing, which we, this is our first time seeing it in the season. Right. Uh, and I like, I like this trope. I like, I like having it here. Well, it would be very familiar to movie audiences at this time. Mm-hmm. This, this goes back at least the decades of the thin man. And so it's very, very recognizable. Okay. We, we were at the end. And so the detective needs to explain everything and reveal who's who. Yes. We also get this like really extreme Chekhov's gun moment happening here <laughs> where for for like five minutes, we keep cutting between Sherlock explaining everything that's happened so far. And that Barham is voice of terror and is, has been a Nazi and is actually an imposter posing as Barham when he's in fact named Heinrich von Bork, which is a very silly, very Muppety name. And uh, but we cut between that and Mead looking and a gun on the table, like three or four times before before Meade finally goes for the gun and shoots Kitty. And then runs away and is immediately shot by the British government. Aiming, he's aiming at Holmes, Kitty leaps in and says, look out, and gets shot. Oh, I missed that. I thought he was... No. She's, oh, okay, so she's seeing him see the gun. Yes. Yeah, so she leaps and says, look out. It's a very big, you know, whether she he's aiming at her or he's aiming at Holmes, she yells a warning, gets mm. shot. Mead runs, gets r- really shot in the back, and <laughs> falls off the cliff. They machine gun the hell out of that guy. Oh yeah, he's he's extraordinarily dead. He will not be in the sequel. I feel like this is really sloppy on Sherlock's part to, like, fully put his back to the Nazi soldiers that are against the wall to not assume that they have guns within reach somewhere, and obviously the fact that Kitty dies because of it feels really like this this is supposed to be the smartest detective alive right he gets so caught up showing off that he doesn't think to to protect the people in the room still i mean also after he announces that sir evan barham is the culprit like he, no one grabs him he continues to just be like like hang out in frame in, in frame directly next to sherlock holmes they, <laughs> for the rest of the explanation they even walk to the window together yeah it's very it's a very like civil explanation right Bork very gentlemanly. Like, very gentlemanly. Oh, oh, yes, you've caught me. Very well done, Holmes. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> very British. Yeah, Bork is like, well, we're going to win, so this doesn't matter. And Holmes is like, haha, not so fast. Look out the window. There's the British troops. Right. Plan foiled. We got you. Right. We somehow lied to the, the inner council about what was going on with the movement of British troops so that we could <laughs> save the day. It's almost like I went over you. I went to dad. Right. Yeah. Mom said no. And then really the only thing left to do, because they really don't even mourn Kitty. There's really something very, very offensive about Kitty's entire arc in this movie, which is, it feels very sexist. She only exists to like be upset that Gavin has died 
to rally the poor men of London to sleep with the enemy and then die. And then die saving the hero. I mean, there's it, it, she's, she's absolutely a martyr figure right. all the way across using every bad lower class English woman trope. And even at the end, like, there's not really any emotion. They're just like, she died a hero. Yep. And then we then we get the the scene that presumably is why they describe it as being based on his last bow, because they quote directly from the end of his last bow, which is the East Wind quote. Watson says, it's a lovely morning, Holmes. And Holmes says, there's an East Wind coming, Watson. I don't think so. It looks like another warm day. Oh, good old Watson, with one fixed point in a changing age. There's an East Wind coming all the same. Such a wind has never blew on England yet. It will be cold and bitter, Watson, and a good many of us may wither before its blast. But it, it's God's own wind, nonetheless, and the greener, better, stronger land will lie in the sunshine when the storm has cleared. And then we get a wide shot of the church to really hammer home the God part, and then we're informed that we can buy war bonds at the theater. Which I like. I, I like that they use this to, to sell war bonds. So the, the movie that immediately follows this is Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, and they do the same thing at the end, except they use the this sceptered isle speech. Holmes gives the, uh, the speech from, what is it, Henry IV, part one? Oh. Talking about you know, this, this, this realm, this England. They use that speech in place of this one. To end with that rousing patriotic England. So we talked about this a couple times throughout, but interesting that this is a, a British film by Americans. Do you think there are things about this that a British production company would not include? a good question i don't know i because they're very they're very americans doing brits there was such a love for england at this time in america because america was listening to the radio broadcasts of of edward r murrow during the blitz and it was really impossible not to you know feel strongly for how how much the british people were suffering and and to sympathize with them and you know lend lease and all of that in 1940 and then the war jumps in and we're all on the same side. And Churchill comes to celebrate Christmas after Pearl Harbor at, in 41 at, at the White House. And you have all of this amazing synergy. So there's a lot of love for England at this time, especially once the war begins, because all of the isolationists were very anti-England. How dare we send all of our, our tanks and stuff to England? And so the government was propping up England a lot in popular culture. And I think there were a lot of people who wanted us to get into the war who were propping up England the same way in Hollywood. That's interesting because I sort of can't imagine the like rah-rah British patriotism playing as well to an American audience today. Not that we're enemies or anything, but I think there's there's less of a sense of us as having the same problems and the same goals now. Right. Although we do face the same kind of political obstacles. So uh, there's a, also the appeal to God at the end surprised me. Uh, I mean, it was certainly a more religious time for both countries, but I, I don't know that there's a lot of by the grace of God sort of stuff happening in terms of the Sherlock Holmes character in the books necessarily. There's one speech in, what is it, the, the Naval Treaty? where he says, he has a whole speech about, if you want to look for evidence of God, you need look no further than the flowers. Mm-hmm. And he has a lovely speech about, you know, how the beauty of nature is where you can really see the evidence of God. And like, wow, that's a really strange speech for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, the guy who doesn't know that the earth goes around the sun, I feel like, wouldn't <laughs> notice the flowers necessarily. Right. And there's so much, I mean, the, he, the guy who only likes useful information philosophizing about flowers for a bit and and on the nature of the divine. Of course, this gets to the heart of the the push and pull between creator and creation, because Conan Doyle ended up, of course, hating Holmes for a long time and becoming very enamored of, of tarot and psychic phenomena and seances and uh, all of that stuff. And his friendship with Houdini is amazing. So all of the stuff that that Holmes absolutely disregards and disdains, his creator ended up deeply believing it. Yeah. Interesting. That's one of the things that's interesting. In one of our early episodes, I joked about how he didn't enjoy doing the Sherlock Holmes stories and like, like, what else did he have to do? And then I read his Wikipedia page and he did a lot of other stuff. Really, really interesting guy whose interests were far ranging and who... Tried, tried a lot of things and did a lot of things. Well, there are a lot of people who tried to, to tell a story about him and his friendship with Houdini because he was convinced Houdini was magic and was just a dick for not revealing the secrets to him. Uh-huh. About <laughs> magic. 
And it ruined their friendship because he's like, no, I know you really are. Can you could really do magic? I'm like, and he's like, man, it's a trick. No, it's not. You can't, you're magical. You're not telling me how. No, I'll tell you how the trick works. No, you're magical. And this is back and forth. It's amazing. And they end up ruining their friendship. There's also some attempts to narrativize his interceding into actual criminal law. He got involved in two court cases where he thought key evidence had been overlooked and that justice was not being served. And he had his, his Sherlock Holmes moment where he got to be a bit of a detective, <laughs> which I think is very interesting, too. That is fun. We should do a final thoughts and then we should rate the film. Yes. Ian, what did you think of The Voice of Terror? I I really like this one. I, I thought I, I thought it was a nice, fun little mystery for a good hour. Yeah, it's really very absorbing. Yeah. And I really I really enjoyed Holmes in this one a lot. It's the Holmes that I think of when I think of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this film for its campiness. I think there's a lot of like very earnest applications of tropes like the the man coming through the door with a knife in his back and the rousing speech at the bar and it's fun i feel like everyone making it was having fun telling a goofy story i mean i mean some of the british patriotism is eyebrow raising for me but understandable in the context of the time of course i think yeah. i think that it's interesting to like make a nod to very serious events with a very goofy movie right yeah it's yeah i i agree it's just a very goofy movie for the time and maybe like the the escapism they needed maybe and the rousing patriotism was needed at the time it was it was a hard time england was feeling better now that america was in the war but they were suffering badly under the the blitz uh from 40 to 42 so it was it was not good stuff at all so having a a british hero being and i can see why they made it the way they made it and i i appreciate it for all of that as a sherlock holmes movie I, i enjoy it but I enjoy it, like you said, for its its camp value. Although it's more for its place in history, it's a, it's a very much a time capsule of of the time in which it was created. Yes. Well, and, and also I, interesting as a way to provide a way for people who lived through the British language German propaganda from Lord Haha to like be able to narrativize that and turn that into a we saved the day. And we we fought back the Nazis in one story during yeah. the wars. Seems like. Uh, yeah, important, important social function. Now, I, having seen all 14 of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies, this rates in the top third, I would say. Mm-hmm. I've seen them all many, many times. I will I will absolutely place um, Sherlock Holmes go to, Goes to Washington at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And there are some, I mean, I, I have fondness for Terror by Night, but that's just because it was one of the first VHS tapes I ever owned when we got our first VCR when I was a mm-hmm. kid. But I'll actually place the second movie also near the bottom, the second of the period pieces, the other MGM one, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, where Moriarty steals the crown jewels. I'll put that pretty near the bottom because it's pretty <laughs> good. Yeah, seriously, there's so many fun things in, in these. They, there's the finger murders in The Woman in Green. There's the spider woman, which is what? They're killing people with, with sp- spiders trapped in gelatin. So somehow they're they're putting gelatin down people's uh, uh, pants or something. And then uh, the spider... The spider, the, the gelatin melts and the spider is released and kills them. And you're like, what? What? How did the spider survive in the gelatin? I don't understand. Uh-huh. And and then you get the, the six Napoleons uh, as a version of the story. You got the, a movie that's based on the Musgrave ritual. So they, they, they do a lot of the stories as nods to them, but they, they do them so badly. And yet they're <laughs> having such fun doing it. So that I have a deep love and disdain in equal measure for a lot of these movies. Yeah, it, I think that's what we've found. It's more fun to talk about a, a product that is complicated to love than it is to talk about one that's easy to love. Yeah. So let's <laughs> let's rate the film. We have a, a five-part rating system. Each each score goes up to five points, and then we try to all agree on a number. So it's loyalty to the source material, grade of mystery, Britishness, thrill, queer subtext. Or the LGBTQ rating, yes. as we call nice. it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So loyalty to the source material is going to be pretty low on this one, I think. <laughs> I don't think we have to use this as a cudgel against any adaptation that's not set in Victorian England. Do the characters feel in character to the books? I would say so. Yeah. yeah. Could we rate them differently for Holmes and Watson? I mean, because it's, I think it lands in a three between, you know, it, it was a pretty good Holmes and a pretty lousy Watson, so. Yeah, I, I think the main characters are 
their homes in Watson, but everything else is just so. I also feel like this idea about homes working for the British government in wartime, I guess, is borne out by his last bow, actually. Yeah, I would I would totally give them props for that one and yeah. for actually using the text from his last bow at the end of the, the film. So yeah. it's at least at least they're they're acknowledging. Yes, that's a that's a thing that he he is very patriotic. I'd be willing to go three then. I would say two. Oh, low. Yeah. Yeah. David, what do you think? I'm I'm at a, at a solid three. Solid three. I think I'm also at a three. Can you can you meet yeah. at a three? Yeah, I can meet at three. Okay. Grade of mystery. How good is this mystery? I, I'm, I'm debating. Is it as bad as a one or is it a two? I'd say it probably a two. Oh, is it? T- uh, that's pretty low. Tell me why. Because first of all, the clues are so randomly sprinkled as to make no narrative sense mm-hmm. uh, and there's no progression and and once again I, I mean all home stories he's withholding something that we didn't know but the the amount of stuff withheld from the audience that we're supposed to just accept at the end it, it's it's frustrating to me i want to feel that all the pieces were there that i could have figured it out and I, that's not the case here on the other hand because of tropes we know exactly who the villain is the moment we meet him so yeah. between the two of them i i would give it a two it's interesting you mentioned that. Are are there home stories from the original Arthur Conan canon where you feel like that stretch that itch? I think the perfect example is the Speckled Band. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have all the pieces. We have mm-hmm. all the pieces. Yeah, I, I would agree that the the mystery is not so satisfying. Yeah. I, I like that we get the big, let me explain everything, denouement, because I like that trope. Everything leading up to it feels sort of hodgepodgey. I'm like, I don't understand how how things relate to each other. We get like co-villains in Mead and Barham, which makes it hard to, f- to figure out focus there, I feel like. And like, w- what is happening in the middle of the story? Right. Right. The other thing I'd say about the, the two villains, uh, unfortunately, because we're just using Nazis as villains, mm-hmm. motivation doesn't matter. We don't have villainous motives other than they're Nazis. That- yeah. Yeah, I'd be willing to to meet you at a two. Yeah, I could do a two. All right. Britishness. Britishness. How British is this film? On the one hand, it's an American film. But on the other hand, if I, I had to keep checking that it was an American film. I had to keep being like, an American company? And these are American actors? Like, I kept looking it up to make sure. I think it's very invested in being British. Yeah, can it be? Can it be too British? Can it? Can we dial it up to eleven here? Is this? I mean, oh, we we, yeah, we could definitely go past five. Yeah, we're, it's more British than British. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna Americans gonna be British. We're gonna lean hard into our British British. <laughs> How about a six? Yes. <laughs> All right, we're doing it. We're breaking the rules. <laughs> yeah, was it? Yeah, but made to be broken. Thrill, overall <laughs> enjoyment of the film. Uh, I enjoy. I had a good time. I, yeah. I'd give it a solid four. Yeah, so would I. I was going to say four, four, because, I mean, as for all of our complaints, it's it's a fun, hour-long, Sherlock Holmes-ish story. Yeah, I was engaged the whole time. I mean, I think it helps that it's an hour, but some films of this period have this this slow pacing, which sometimes is really, really good, and sometimes is just slow. But this doesn't have that. And then finally, queer subtext, there's the nine. This is the straightest film. Yeah. <laughs> right, I continue to, to wonder if they like each other at all. We get, we get, the one moment where Holmes defends Watson against a Nazi being rude to him, but that's right. really it. At the very beginning, you know, Holmes has never failed. The world is seldom Watson, seldom. You get that at the beginning. So they're they're defending each other to other people, but they do not treat each other with a lot of care. Yeah. No. I'd give it a one. Yeah, I'd yeah. give it a one. Yeah, sure. Absolutely one. So with our wonderful rating system, even with the additional six <laughs> in Britishness, <laughs> this film rates a 16 out of 25. Which is interesting because it makes it higher than the 15 we gave Hound of the Baskervilles. Right. By one point. Do, do you think you enjoyed this one more than Hound of the Baskervilles? Or less? I enjoyed them about equally, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think this one had a little more campy things to it unexpectedly campy things that wasn't like the fault of the story just of the things around it Mm -hmm. yes kitty the nazis killed him Uh, (laughs) every time although for hound of the baskervilles it's that moment where he puts his hands over the eyes of the painting and there's a dramatic light across it and then we flash right to stapleton's eyes i'm like aha and and they don't look that similar they don't (laughs) so good 
Uh, I actually like this one more than I like Hound of the Baskervilles, despite me being the, the purest at heart, because I find that version of Hound to be somewhat plotting. I find it pacing to be very leisurely and stately. And like, I was like, okay, move it along, folks. Although I find that true of most versions of Hound of the Baskervilles, because it is not the most you know, story exciting, you know, like dri- driven plot. Uh, I think uh, it's a problem with the book. I, I mean, agree. This, I agree entirely. This is my complaint, and people love that book. My complaint about it is that, as you're talking about with Voice of Terror, the mystery doesn't develop in the middle. He gets some threatening at the beginning. And then Watson's just hanging out while other things are happening in Dartmoor for a while. I, I got to tell you, Sign of Four is a much better novel. I mean, mm. just just in terms of just pure novel, yeah, driving force, tons of clues. You, you're following a narrative. It is good discovery after good discovery. Lots of fun action stuff. You're chasing with the dog, Toby, through the streets of London. It's a great time. I love Sign of Four. And I don't understand why Hound of the Baskervilles was so much more loved. I mean, maybe it's the image of the spectral hound, the, this whole in our head. And there's all sorts of problematic racism and against India and the Andaman Islanders. You have all that stuff in a Sign of Four to deal with. But in terms of just pure story, I think Sign of Four is a much more engaging story. How about Valley of Fear? Valley of Fear, I can never make it through. <laughs> okay. okay. It makes me angry every time. I'm like, ah, you're contradicting the Moriarty stuff you've already put into play. Come okay. on now. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. It's been a delight. Yay. Thank you for sharing all this with me. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing your expertise about these adaptations with us. Uh, This period is really interesting that they just made 200 radio stories and 14 movies in eight years is really extraordinary. And then both of them stopped and and didn't do much else except for a couple guest appearances and produced what I think is the template that a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories base the characters on much more than, than what appears in the Conan Doyle stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Next week, we're going to read two more of Arthur Conan Doyle's short stories, The Red-Headed League and Devil's Foot. And the week after that, we're watching the Granada TV show adaptations of both of those stories with a special guest. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you then. 